at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. The text for this morning is Ephesians 6 verse 9. We'll begin reading from Ephesians 6, verse 5 through verse 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you that you indeed are kind and merciful to sinners. Father, we thank you for your word that your word gives us hope. Father, that your word requires our humble submission and obedience. Father, may we delight to honor Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you are the one who has great power to bless, greater than any man, greater than the world has to curse. And we thank you, Father, that you bring hope to people in any situation. Father, we thank you Your word gives us testimony of this. And Father, we thank you for your provision to us. We thank you, Father, for our Lord Jesus, who indeed is the one who humbled himself, even to take the form of a bondservant, to die the horrible death of the cross. But you exalted him to the highest place so that his name would be above every name. Father, we thank you also that our Lord Jesus is the gentle and the loving master, that he has promised that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Father, we thank you for you have given to us the very best. Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for your provision of the Holy Spirit who persuades us of the truth of your word and turns us in humble submission to it. We pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power even this day, that your people would delight in you. And we pray, Father, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you recount in your lives, uh, you think back to all the bosses that you've had, And perhaps you recount some of them that were quite good. And for them, you've praised the Lord. You've given thanks to the Lord for them. They may not even have been believers. That's not always the case, that you can have non-Christian bosses who are just, who are fair, who who are kind. Perhaps you've also had some horrible bosses, some some that go on the, the memorable list. In any one of those situations here, we realize that God's goodness is manifested. Isn't it the case that with those horrible bosses, you come to realize even more so 
how kind and considerate and just our Lord Jesus is. There is then a bad example, even that of contrast. Here we think about how there are horrible bosses in life. In this particular situation that the Apostle Paul is addressing, clearly he's not speaking about hired servants. He's speaking about bondmen. He's speaking about slaves who are indentured for life, that, that these would have been acquired by Roman conquests uh, through violence, through the conquering of other nations, uh, colonizing them, bringing them back, uh, having a large workforce of slave labor, having frequent uh, uprisings and having to put, put them in their place with executions. Here, we see that the Apostle Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, is giving life-giving life instruction that this is hope even for people in the worst of situations. So we think about how difficult your, some of your situations are in having a horrible boss or difficult management. Imagine how much more difficult it would have been for people who received this word. These would have been those in a household, because here he's, he's addressing the various relations, uh, uh, wives, and then husbands, children, and then parents. And, and then he addresses slaves, and then masters. These would have been those within a household. They, where the expectation is that these would have been first-generation Christians. They would have been a part of a household, and likely also part of this church, the part of this church body, that the Apostle Paul would have addressed them. But this letter would have been read. Here we think about how in these various relationships is God the Lord, is he the master of every one of your relationships? Here we see in this passage, Christian bosses are to serve and emulate Jesus, the master, in showing respect, sincerity, and good will to subordinates. Christian bosses are to serve and emulate Jesus, the master, in showing respect, sincerity, and good will to subordinates. We'll look at this in two points. The first is the duties of masters. And second, the warnings to masters. So the first point, the duties of masters. The first half of verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. What a concise, what a short statement that the Apostle Paul makes. Here we think about how here, this last verse... Uh, of this section, that clearly there's a, a change in chapter marker. We're in Ephesians 6 now, the last chapter, but it, it is the closing, the, the final verse of a section that began at Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then there, the Apostle Paul addresses the whole gamut of relationships, wives, husbands, children, fathers, and also here, slaves and masters. Here, the understanding is that our God, as he redeems people, that he also is the one who redeems relationships, that he is the one who calls relationships to account to himself, that relationships and interactions within our relationships would be according to his word and in full submission to him. Here, you think about how difficult life would have been the relationships between master and slave. Perhaps you have a converted slave and an unconverted master. 
Perhaps it's flipped around. You have a converted master and an unconverted slave. You realize that how the master acts to his slaves, how the slave responds to his master. These are often the means that God uses to redeem people. You ask, how can God redeem anyone in such a horrible situation? And so I ask you the simple question, do you believe in God? Do you believe God's power, his sovereignty? Who put them there in that situation? Here we think about the historic context, that slavery was a way of life in the first century in the Roman world. We think about how we covered last week, we won't repeat it, uh, the duties of slaves. And we think about how, how bad the situation would have been. Here, the Apostle Paul summarizes, he summarizes for masters what their duties are by the simple statement, do the same to them. You think for a moment how revolutionary these instructions were. First off, the fact that the Apostle Paul addressed slaves as people, morally culpable people, that this was a revolutionary thought. We think about how we talked earlier about how there were children and parents. And in first century Rome, there was the principle of patria potestas, power of the father. Roman father, his power never came to an end. His children became adults. Uh, they started growing gray hair. There was no cutoff marker. When the Roman father had power over his children, he had power until his death. He had the power to sell his own children into slavery. He had power to take the life of his children. So think for a moment. You think about an adult male, a Roman citizen in that, in that environment. If his father had the authority to take his life, how much more worse would it be for someone who was a slave? Here, we think about how submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. There were addresses given to slaves, but there were also addresses given to masters. You notice how in God's sphere, in God's instructions, no one is excluded. There are duties for every person. Here, we think back to last week, what we talked about from Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. We're going to have to cover some of those things because the whole matter of do the same to them, everything that came up for slaves must also come up regarding masters. Here, we think about how even the term slave, that the Apostle Paul didn't use the word servant. They're not hired servants. They were bondmen. They were bond, bonded for life, the term doulos. We think about how throughout history since the fall, that the institution of slavery was not, was not started by God like marriage was, that it was the result of the fall. You know, I remember there were some friends who were, who were talking, and, and I don't know whether or not they were believers. And you know, we started, somehow got on the topic of stalking. And even these non-Christians understood, no, Stalking was not something that happened in the last few decades where there are laws against. No, this would have been going back all the way, you know, as, as, far, as, as far as the history of man, meaning when, when Adam fell, that 
all those sins would have been part of the fall. There was nothing new. Here, you think about throughout history since the fall, the horrors that have been committed within the context of slavery. Yet even so, God requires obedience of slaves to their masters. And it's not merely an out, outward obedience. He doesn't say, hey, make sure you do everything correctly as, as they're watching you. In fact, he says, don't do that. It must be from the heart. You think about how often in verses 5 through 8, as you would Christ, but as servants of Christ, as to the Lord and not to man, he's saying that these things manifest themselves even in how we act. Here, it's a tendency for sinful man only to see the human hands and the human wills involved. But as you come to understand God's power, God is sovereign. And let none of us forget that. Here, John Calvin raises this very principle. He comments on this section. He says, hence it follows that it is not enough if their obedience satisfy the eyes of men. For God requires truth and sincerity of heart. When they serve their masters faithfully, they obey God. As if he had said, do not suppose that by the judgment of men you were thrown into slavery. It is God who has laid upon you this burden, who has placed you in the power of your masters. Here, John Calvin believed in the sovereignty of God. So do we. So if you have this horrible boss, we can't say this is some freak accident. It's there for a purpose. Here, we think about how practical God's advice is. And we may not say advice, how practical his commandments are. This show due respect and goodwill, doing your work diligently. Isn't this the safest condition for a person in bondage? That if he were to defy, disrespect his master, would there be greater danger upon him? You would think that if he were to obey and do his work properly. Here, part of what we struggle with is this idea of someone has a right to my labor. Someone has a right to my labor. They have the ability to profit from my work. Isn't this what's happening when you agree to a contract for work that your boss has a right to your labor, your diligent labor? In fact, you think about how the structures work. Your boss is graded. He is, his performance review is partly on your performance, your output. So you think about how uh, this, this top-down method works. Whatever punishments you can get in your workplace, he would probably receive more, if anything. Here we think to the example of the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph. Uh, let's not, let's not uh, beat around the bush. You think about what happened to Joseph. This faithful scene, his brothers threw him into a dry pit. And they are plotting to kill him. We're going to kill him. And they came up with this brilliant idea. Oh, no, wait a minute. He's our flesh and blood. We can't do that. So let's sell him into slavery. Horrible, horrible situation. And you think about what happened to him. Well, he was actually man-stolen. He was kidnapped. He says that very thing in Genesis 40, verse 15. And we think about the punishments, the appropriate punishments for man-stealing, that, that his brothers were punishable by death, but it didn't happen. There was no situation where he could... He could uh, uh, bring this up. You think about where he ended up. So the Midianites 
uh, they, they sold him into Egypt. And then the assumption was that he would have been purchased in a slave market in Egypt. That Potiphar would have said, hey, I like this young man. He purchased him. And you think about what Joseph could have said. Hey, Potiphar, I demand to speak to you because I was man-stolen. I need to be separate. No, no, he doesn't go that way. It would not have gone well. Here, you think about protest, uh, rebellion, or, or claiming exemption of Potiphar. He, he would not have heard anything of it. What he did was he labored. He realized that this is God's sovereignty over me. I have no other choice. He labored. And God great, greatly blessed his work. You think about what it said in Genesis 39 there, verses 3 and 4. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. Do we have anything in that passage that speaks about Potiphar as a just and a righteous man? We do not. What we have here is that Potiphar realizes he has a golden goose in his possession. Correct? There's nothing here that says he was a righteous man. What he saw was that, hey, anything I give to this man Joseph, he is diligent, he is capable, he is trustworthy. He touches it and it turns to gold by the blessing of God. He doesn't care. He says, hey, the practical matter is anything I give him, he does well with. He put everything in his charge. Then here, out of another injustice, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of attacking her, he ends up in an Egyptian prison. And yet God prospered him yet again. In his work as an administrator, apparently he oversaw all, all the prisoners. And the jailers there said, man, he's quite good at his role, that they entrusted him with everything. And that's when he ran into the baker uh, and the cupbearer. He interpreted the baker's dream. And, and then Pharaoh later had this dilemma. He, had, he, was, he was being uh, haunted by these dreams that he had. And the baker, oh, I forgot. I was supposed to tell you about this guy. Uh, how many years passed? He tells him. He gets cleaned up, brought to Pharaoh. Here, God is one who brings one down. He's also the one who raises up another. Man cannot keep down whom God will raise up. Here, you think about how one who was in bonds, according to Psalm 105, that he then became the prime minister of Egypt. Perhaps a good question to ask was, when Joseph was prime minister in Egypt, was he slave or was he free? And I think the answer is, we don't know. And it probably didn't matter, meaning... After he was promoted to prime minister, did he have the option of, hey, I'm going to leave and go back home? Well, slave or free, he had power. He had the signet ring of the pharaoh. Here, we also have the perfect example of the bondservant in our Lord Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here, have you ever thought about God's dealings with his people? 
He told Abraham, see this land? It's going to be yours. You're only going to pass through it. And by the way, he makes all these great covenants, and then he tells Abraham, but your descendants, they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Was that by accident? You think about, what is God doing? Why would he do that to his people? Who does God think he is? He's God. But the idea that God, who loves his people, would enslave them for 400 years, hard for us to understand. But God is righteous, and we are not. And so we come back to this idea. Masters, do the same to them. What God is saying to masters is that the very same principles apply to these masters. This revolutionary statement that God addresses earthly masters and warns them in their treatment of slaves. Here, John Calvin again addresses this very matter. He says that it's the sinner's nature to seek exception, extenuating circumstances. Here he says, such is the import of Paul's phrase, the same things. For we are all ready enough to demand what is due to ourselves. But when our own duty comes to be performed, everyone attempts to plead exception. So the masters can claim, hey, you don't know what type of people I have to oversee. And Calvin continues and addresses this matter. Hey, you can have these uneducated, illiterate laborers. But then somehow, when it comes to their rights and arguing exceptions, they become master litigators. They become uh, Ivy League trained lawyers, just like our children, just like us, when it comes to pleading exceptions. So what does Paul mean by do the same to them? You think about this fear and trembling. The Apostle Paul is not saying that slaves should have slavish fear of their masters, fearing the lash. No, he's saying as converted men that they are to be in fear and trembling, just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, that he came to the Corinthians with fear and trembling, is that there is fear that he would always, and in every way, in every instance, honor our God. The fear is of God, not of man. Here also, that same fear and trembling should be found in the Master, that God has commanded them, that they would do the same, that they would be just, that they would be equal, and that they had a duty to, to do this, meaning that their concern would be that if some difficulty came up, that the master would desire not to fly off the handle in anger or in rage. Here, you think also about how there must be the honor of God from the slave and also from the master. And it must be with sincerity and in submission to Christ. Slaves owe due respect for their master as one who has been put in authority over them. And masters owe due respect and dignity to these slaves as those who were created in the image of God. Here, masters were also to render service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, meaning that he has to realize that he answers to somebody. We're going to get to that in the next section. These masters had to be taught that they had to show dignity to these slaves 
because they also were created in the image of God. Here, we think also of the instructions given in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, that our elder read earlier. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. Here, you think about the temptation that there, there is no upward appeal for masters. They could rule by cruelty and injustice. But yet the scriptures tell us that we are to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Kindness goes very far. You realize how much this is true. You realize how far it's true, even in any retail situation. You see all these videos of these people going in these tirades. Do they get anything other than uh, having their videos go viral? That if you speak kindly to someone in customer service, it probably will go very far. Because here, I think about uh, differences. Uh, I won't say who, but in, in my extended family, let's just say, uh, that I know a couple are polar opposites. <clears throat> she fights for every inch that she gets. And sometimes she doesn't get anywhere. And then her husband, a gentleman, he doesn't fight for anything at all. But it seems like good things seem to come his way. And this is the principle of kindness. Isn't this true for you and for me? As you think through various bosses that you've had, for those who were kind to you, who treated you uh, with respect, that you saw that they genuinely cared for you, wasn't it a far better work environment for you to work for them? Here, we think also about the simple concept of contracts. You know, John Murray addressed this matter regarding contracts. Generally speaking, we have a duty to fulfill our contracts, to hold to the contracts. But he acknowledged sometimes in contracts, contracts for work, or business, the situation could change drastically. Where for someone to say, hey, I'm holding to the contract, let's just say a sudden rise, the cost of materials, uh, inflation. Now, the boss could say to his employee, hey, this was the contract, and we're holding to it. Or they can say, what's really changed? Significant things have changed. Holding to the contract could be a form of, of uh, exacting legalism. And here we think about how those principles, justice and equality, apply in our lives. We think even of the way that the world defines equality. They think about this equity. They have this term equity that means equality of outcome. And we think about equality of opportunity. Obviously, with the life of Joseph, the outcome, not everyone can become a prime minister. He obviously did well. There was no, it shouldn't have been a quality of outcome. There was a quality of opportunity. He was a slave like the other slaves in Potiphar's house. Here, equality of opportunity. Everyone gets the same opportunity. If we could accomplish even that. So this is the first point, the duties of masters. We have also the warnings to masters in the second half of verse 9. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So this concept of stop your threatening. Certain accounts 
in first century Roman slavery indicated that threats of beatings, sexual harassment, and permanent separation of family members was commonplace uh, from masters. Perhaps they were often fulfilled on two. Here we think about every expression of disdain upon subordinates originates from pride of these superiors and included in it would be these threats. Here, we think about the common workplace that we have. It's best if bosses have done the job of those that they're overseeing, that they've worked their way up from the bottom. This is always a good principle. But you have to understand that that's not a true fix either. It's very easy for a legal spirit to creep in. For a person who is above someone else to think I was the low person in the group and the management lorded it over me. And now that I'm above others, I will lord it over them. This is the same spirit that was present in that of the unmerciful servant that God warns us about. Meaning, the Pharisee manifests himself in how he responds when he is in a situation that he once was. Think about God's warnings to Israel. He says to them, don't forget so quickly who or where you once were. Deuteronomy 24, 17 to 18. You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. Here, God is constantly bringing up what happened to Israel. You were foreigners in Egypt. You were slaves in Egypt. Here, we think about also this concept of threats. Stop your threatening. The bane of threats for any environment. Threats lead to the whole concept of a nuclear escalation. And in any environment that you find yourself in, threats always make the situation worse. I'll give you a few examples. In marriage, if you do X or you don't do Y, I will divorce you. Who likes to hear that? In a family, children can say to their parents, if you don't provide me with Z, I will report you to Child Protective Services. It wouldn't go well for the child. In the church, if you do this or you don't do that, I will leave the church. In the workplace, if you don't do it correct and immediately, I will fire you. Or if you don't give me a raise right away, I will leave. Threats in any relationship result in a focus on conflict with the goal of winning and losing. So here, you think about how in any of your relationships, are you the type who is engaging in threats? Right? God's people, we should not be those who are constantly threatening and trying to intimidate people. Here we have a caveat to this that the command to put away threatening does not exclude uh, the situation where warnings of punishments 
are needed. That if there's obvious wrongdoing, that it may, there may be a situation where a warning is given. That's different than threatening. Threatening decides, de, 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 describes the culture of a relationship. Here, we think about how at times, especially in any relationship, having to be able to understand the other side and what it is they want or need. It's true in a marriage, it's true in a friendship. How much, how much is it true in a situation for, for management and labor or bosses and employees? You think about the boss's perspective. He expects uh, diligence, he expects productivity, loyalty, trustworthiness, honesty, quality of work. Does a boss have a right to that, that we as Christians, if we're working for a boss, we should desire to do quality work all the time because it reflects our master, who is Jesus. And then for the employees, they expect loyalty, trustworthiness, honesty, realistic goals, a fair wage, adequate time off, all, all of these things. Here we think about the master's uh, expected provision, or the boss's expected provision, treating their subordinates with dignity and respect. Proper training for the work expected, meaning if if they haven't been trained, then the expectation will be failure, that they have to provide proper training. Oftentimes, that's expensive. Adequate provisions, whether food, water, clothing, shelter, and uh, in the situation for employees, would be fair wages. And if anything, a Christian boss, you would hope, would pay more, not less. How about the concept of a Sabbath rest? Having the Lord's Day off so that uh, they may bring their family to worship God. Here we think about the allowances for the works of necessity, the police, fire, hospital, things like that, and mercy, doctors and nurses. Uh, we think also about just the concept of a secular age. Secular age. When you think about a job application that uh, you've given, been given a job offer, there's, there's an expectation that the job offer is is not the final thing. There's often some discussion, some wiggle room, so to say. But uh, we live in a secular culture so that if you believe that you should have the Lord's Day off, that has to be part of your negotiation. That means you might have to give up. Hey, I, I could probably negotiate several thousand more in my pay, or I can negotiate getting the Lord's Day off. You can't expect to get it after the fact. You must prioritize that in your own life. Here, there's also knowing that the master also has a mutual master in heaven. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. It's a reminder then that everyone who is in authority is also under authority. For a master to think, I answer no one. This is false. This verse is brief, but it's such a good reminder that masters, you will answer someday for your actions. Think about the warnings that God gave to Israel. Exodus 22, 21 to 24. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he cries out to me, 
I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Do you you think that that warning uh, was only valid in the Old Testament? Was it was only valid uh, a year or ten years after it was stated? I think this principle applies throughout time for an eternity, or rather to the end of time, end of recorded time. Here, the statement that their master and yours is in heaven is a warning that to anyone who is in authority, nobody is above the law, and that we must always act and speak as those who are under God's authority. And then there's the warning here, and there is no partiality with him, meaning that God is no respecter of persons. Not that he doesn't respect people. It's that he's not swayed by titles or honors or degrees or wealth. He doesn't treat rich people and poor people differently. Here, you think about how the cross of Jesus Christ is level, meaning that no one has any greater advantage or disadvantage to the cross. Everyone is equally low, that no one can claim a special privilege in that way. We are all in need of God's mercy and grace. Here we think about some biblical examples of good masters. The reason why I switched to Ruth chapter 2 for Old Testament reading is I wanted to highlight this man, Boaz. He was the example of a just and a kind master. He was a great man. He was a wealthy man. You think about how Israel had certain laws. Certain laws were given to Israel saying, no, do not... Do not reap to the edge or the corner of your field. If, if you're harvesting and you have your sheaves and you've forgotten one, God says, leave it there. That corner on the edge of the field, that's for the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan to glean. And, and that sheaf that you forgot, that's for them to pick up. When you harvest your olives, don't beat out uh, the, the, the branch a second time. The olives that remain, those are for the poor. But it's not as if those laws suddenly got them to think, oh, we ought to do this correctly. You think about how Boaz, in his warnings to Ruth, you get some idea what would happen. Here, Boaz says to her, first you see Boaz's interactions with, uh, with his reapers, his servants, right? where, where he, says, he says to them, the Lord be with you. And they respond, may the Lord bless you. There's no cursing. You would expect that for those who are reaping the field, doing the work, and for the gleaners, uh, people who are poor gleaning, that uh, there would be gratitude that we get to uh, take from your field. That They weren't supposed to apply the sickle. They were allowed to take with their hands. Remember, that's the rule. But uh, you would think that the, the masters who own the fields, there could be disdain for them. He, he describes that principle when he says to his servants, uh, pull, pull out some of the grain and give it to her, and do not insult her. Do not reproach her. You think about the bad things that could happen in the field. Uh, here, Boaz says to Ruth, hey, please, don't go to some other field. 
Stay in my field. Stay, stay with my women, with my female servants. So essentially what he's saying is, hey, bad things happen in other fields. And you think about what he said. Did I command my servants, my servant men, not to touch you? It's as if Boaz made an announcement many times. Hey, listen, this is my field. I am the master of my field. None of these women of mine will be harmed. If you harm any of them, I, as your kind master, will come down on you hard. I am the law. Just imagine what he would have done. He's saying, I know bad things happen out there in the field. He's telling Ruth, stay here. It's safer for you here. And you see how he treated her, though she was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. She was considered unclean. But here we think about Jesus, the perfect model for the true master. You can think about Jesus' promises. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here, we think about how the world is blinded by the lies of Satan, such that they cannot see that Christ, his ways, his teachings, his truth, they don't see Jesus as a gentle and loving master. Are you able to see his goodness and mercy manifested in every sphere of your life? Or is he a cruel master? Trust in him that he alone is the one who gives anyone hope for forgiveness and eternal life. This book speaks to us about true justice and mercy and love. And our Lord Jesus is Lord of it all. He is the Word. He is the Word incarnate. Trust also that His reign over your life is good. That He is the one who gives you true rest. The world only knows oppression. Jesus is the one who is the gentle and loving master. He is the one who sets you free from the worst bondage, the bondage to your own sins. And he gives us eternal life. He alone gives it. And he gives it generously. He gives it abundantly. He desires that we would treasure him. That having him as our master should be your greatest joy and my greatest joy. May we remember to embrace him. That his promises are sure. That his ways are perfect. And that our lives are entirely set free in him. Here. I think about the great opportunity that we each have for a godly testimony in the relationships that we have in work. You think about how, how much time we spend working. For the most part, you think about home. Uh, the joke is that, uh, especially in certain parts of the country, you you drive, you open your garage door, you drive right in, you shut the garage door, that you almost don't know your neighbors. Maybe on the weekend you would see them. You know, then, then the same places people would drive in, you, you, only, you, know, you don't see them at night, and then on the weekends they're gone doing something fun. You never see them. But the people at work, you see them for so many hours. I'm not saying that we should use company time to evangelize. No, that, that would be stealing. But here you think about how many 
relationships there are. And in each of these, you think about how actions and speech and attitude manifest uh, to others who it is that we worship. That we worship Jesus Christ, who is the humble and the loving master. That we ought to desire to put these relationships uh, to good, proper use for the kingdom. That how you respond when that fellow employee comes to you with some horrific statement about the boss, how you respond speaks volumes. Will you receive it? Or will you correct it? Will you respond with a simple speaking the opposite of how, how thankful you are for having such a boss? For bosses, Christian bosses, this means proper care, kindness, justice for subordinates. And here we think about so many ways that God has given us. And he reminds us that he is the perfect master, that he is the one whom we serve. May your life and my life reflect that, our gratitude to our Lord Jesus. May we go to our God together in prayer.